On June 28, 1914, shots rang out in the streets of Sarajevo, the capital of the Austro-Hungarian province of Bosnia and Herzegovina. With two shots, Gravillo Princip assassinated Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife, Sophie, Duchess of Hohenberg, lighting the powder keg of political tensions that would erupt in the First World War. At this moment in history, weapons technology had improved quickly, outpacing military strategy and leadership. As a result, combat was especially gruesome, with antiquated battalions of foot soldiers, in some cases, wearing conspicuous, colorful garments, futilely charging headlong into machine gun fire and heavy artillery. 23 million soldiers lost their lives in brutal trenches and foxholes across Europe. But, among the survivors of World War I, was a young J.R.R. Tolkien, who would go on to write his genre-defining high-fantasy epic, The Lord of the Rings, partially influenced by his harrowing wartime experiences. His work was foundational for all fantasy that followed, including, somewhat controversially, a role-playing game developed in the early 1970s by Dave Arneson and Gary Gygax, Dungeons and Dragons. This week, on Lucky Paper Radio, it's Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. Welcome to Lucky Paper Radio. I'm your host, Andy. I'm here with my co-host, Anthony, founding member of the Turbo Team Maddox. I'm so excited to finally get the Turbo Team together. We've got a full eight pod for the Turbo Draft, and that's what we're talking about today, right? You finished your Turbo Cube in paper, your third Cube finished in paper. We did a draft on stream last night. We'll put the video in the show notes. People can watch that if they want to check it out, and they missed the stream. And we're doing a full eight pod today, Anthony, of your very fast Cube. Should be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. We are not talking about that on this episode, though. But in the spirit of the Turbo Cube, this is going to be a Turbo podcast. We are doing our Adventures in the Forgotten Realms set review show. This is going to be a little different than past set review shows. For one, Jet is not joining us. He's on vacation, doesn't have time to talk about Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. So it is just Anthony and I. And unlike Modern Horizons, where we went really, really deep on almost all of the cards that lots of cube designers are testing... Here we're going to go a little shallower. We're going to talk about some things in passing, some of the cards that interest us, but just keep it a little quicker. So this podcast should be right around normal podcast length instead of the three and a half hour slog that was the Modern Horizon show. Yeah, the Modern Horizon set was really unique in that it was doing, you know, all kinds of cards. Not every card belonged to a theme. They were just throwing a lot of one-ofs at us, which just meant a lot of things could fit in different cubes. Adventures of the, For- of the Forgotten Realms is much more like a tra- traditional set where we have a couple different core mechanics, and either you're kind of interested in those mechanics or not. So hopefully we can talk about things a little bit more holistically. Yeah. So like I said, Turbo Podcast. We're going to go quick. But before we dive into our cards individually, I want to talk about the survey data, which we're going to be referencing in the show. So regular listeners of the show will know that we do a survey for every set and ask cube designers what cards they are testing. Every cube designer basically selects the cards they plan on testing in their cube, and then they rate them on a scale from one to three, where one is a card they're very skeptical of, but they're going to try out, maybe see if it overperforms or doesn't meet their expectations. Three is a card that's like an absolute staple for them. It's going to be a card they're going to have in their cube for a very long time. And then two is kind of right in the middle, card they're testing, you know, somewhere in between about. And the goal of this survey is just to capture how excited people are for these cards uh, in their respective cubes. So we're not trying to make some kind of objective scale of best cube cards in the set or anything. We're just trying to gather the broad diversity of what cubes are across all different kinds of restrictions and design philosophies to just see which cards are checking most of those boxes for people. 
So we're going to talk about some of the cards that are most tested, so the most people are interested in, as well as just a couple cards that we think are relevant and are, are worth a look by cube designers. That's by no means the entire set, so go ahead and check out the article as well. Uh, it'll have a cool graph that'll show you both how popular the cards are in terms of number of people that are interested in them, as well as how contentious they are and how excited people are about them. I should say, when this show comes out, the article will not yet quite be out. It's going to be coming out in the, in the coming weeks, so look forward to that and uh, subscribe to our newsletter if you want to find out when it drops. Should we dive into individual cards, Anthony? Just kind of take this speed style turbo team? Let's do it. It's turbo time. Turbo time! And then they get really serious. They say it's turbo time. And they both start running around the house as fast as they can and jumping over the couches. But when you try and jump in, they yell at you and they say, you're not part of the turbo team. Don't run. You don't run with us. We're the ones who run. Until you're part of this turbo team, walk slowly. All right, we're going to start off with the full cycle of Creature Lands. There is one in each color in this set, and they are among the most popular cards tested by the respondents of our survey. This cycle of lands, one of each color, each of these lands taps for its respective color of mana. So the white one taps for white, the red one taps for red, etc., etc. And they enter the battlefield tapped if they are your third or later land drop. So if you one of your first two lands, they come into play untapped. If it's your third, fourth, fifth land you play, they're going to enter the battlefield tapped. That is their downside. And then they all have an activation cost to turn them into a creature until end of turn. So in color order, the white one is Cave of the Frost Dragon. And for four and a white, it can be turned into a 3-4 white dragon creature with flying. The blue one, Hall of Storm Giants, for five and a blue, can be turned into a 7-7 blue giant creature with ward three. The black one, Hive of the Eye Tyrant, for three and a black, can become a 3-3 black beholder creature and it has a triggered ability whenever it attacks exile target card from defending player's graveyard. The red one, Den of the Bugbear, 4-3 in a red, can become a 3-2 red goblin creature. And whenever it attacks, you create a 1-1 goblin tapped and attacking. And Lair of the Hydra, nice and simple, for X and a green, can become an XX green hydra creature. Anthony, what do you think of these lands? I'm really excited to see these lands. As you may or may not know, I love man lands. I think they're just such an interesting way to add more texture and complexity and opportunity to gameplay where you are, you know, not paying a high cost for including these in your deck, but you have a lot more options. And I love the combination of this fast mana or, you know, the fast land mechanic combined with the man lands because it's still a real cost that they come into play tapped some of the time. So it's not just, you know, always include this in your deck, but it's low enough of a cost that I think even some of the much higher powered cubes can afford to run these. You say it's not always included in your deck. Can you imagine in my cube or your cube drafting a deck of any of these colors and deciding to not play these lands? I don't think so. And I think that is a relevant comparison, you know, to something like uh, Treetop Village, where I think some decks, especially in your cube, you might actively avoid it because that's too high of a cost. Treetop Village always coming into play tapped, I think, is very different than coming into play tapped some percentage of the time. I always like to think about how you see seven cards in your opening hand and then only one card per turn, you know, barring any card draw or other kinds of card advantage for later on turns of the game. So if your cube is fast like mine, most games are over by turn five, six, seven, basically, is when the sort of deciding plays are made. That's the turns where you really can't afford to have a tap land when you don't want one. And if you're not drawing an abundance of cards, if you're going to see this card in a game, it's, you know, maybe 50-50 to have been in your opening hand, basically. And so you're very often going to get to play these cards untapped when you need to. I think these cards are very strong. The The community is pretty high on them. Like I said, they are among the most popular cards across the entire set tested by everybody. 
So these are all rare lands, so they're not going to be tested by peasant or pauper cubers. But amongst unrestricted cube designers, Den of the Bugbear has 40% of our respondents testing it. Cave of the Frost Dragon, 28%. Hive of the Eye Tyrant, 23%. Lair of the Hydra, 21%. And then Hall of Storm Giants, the least popular. But still 17% of our respondents are going to try out that big old blue giant land. I would happily put these in many decks drafted in my cube for the reason I just said, is that if they're in your opening hand, you get to play them untapped. And oftentimes, they'll be in your opening hand if you see them over the course of a game. And then the chance that you draw them later, and it's also on a turn where you need to use all your mana and curve out, is, I think, a, a relatively small cost for the big upside these cards offer. I mean, Cave of the Frost Dragon, the white one, is, I think, very relevantly drawing comparisons to Celestial Colonnade, which taps for two colors of mana, it mana fixes you, so it's a dual land, which is, which is good, uh, and becomes a slightly bigger creature with a relevant keyword ability, but is a gold card. You need to have both colors of mana in order to activate it, and you right. can't use the colonnade itself as those mana to activate it, because then it'd be tapped and it can't, you know, attack or block. So for being monocolored, I think Cave of the Frost Dragon is a very solid side grade to something like Celestial Colonnade. It's like a very good card. Train Master GT's high take. Cave of the Frost Dragon is the strongest creature lands in Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. This card has largely been snubbed by portions of the cube community because they believe it to be worse than Celestial Colonnade. The truth is that the two cards couldn't be more different. Cave of the Frost Dragon can go into virtually every white deck. Because it can enter the battlefield untapped in the early game, proactive decks can play it without losing tempo. Meanwhile, control decks can still use it as a great late game mana sink. I think Cave of the Frost Dragon is really strong, and I think more people should be considering it for cube inclusion. Thank you. The one I'm most excited about, I agree with the community, I'm most excited about Den of the Bugbear. That is the red one that makes a 3-2 that produces a token when it attacks. We've never seen, to my knowledge, I can't think of one, a creature land that makes a token, makes a token creature, period. No, and I think that's such a cool twist on it, because uh, the drawback or, you know, the play pattern that's not super exciting about Manlands is, cool, you have that flexibility and the opportunity, if you have nothing else to do, you can use it. But it does cost a lot of resources to keep activating it if you just want to use it as a creature. So the fact that Den of the Bugbear actually generates value that lasts beyond the turn is really, really cool, and I love that uh, aspect of this design. Yeah, I think it's really powerful, and I am most enthusiastic about creature lands in my aggressive decks, which are the decks that oftentimes will worn out of resources in the late game because all their cards are very cheap and you're just going to have extra mana sitting around and they also want to beat down. And so these aggressive creature lands are things I'm very excited about. The one I'm second most excited about is actually Hive of the Eye Tyrant. I'm not quite as high on Cave of the Frost Dragon. We did some testing with this uh, on stream and 3-3 Menace is a very good aggressive body. And the fact that it exiles a card when you get to attack is a cool toolbox effect to have. The fact that that triggered ability is a much more narrow than perhaps the other cards here, which has become big flyers, or they become giant creatures, or they become creatures that make tokens. Like That's kind of a reactive ability that might make activating Hive of the Eye Tyrant more appealing than you would have thought. Like It might have been a term you never would have considered activating a creature land, but because your opponent has an Uro in the graveyard, now you're like, well, I'm just going to throw this land away because I need to get rid of that Uro. And having that flexibility at basically no cost, I think is, is very strong. Right. I, I totally agree. Like in the same way that Den of the Bugbear gives you a token, it generates some value for using it. The the value from exiling relevant cards from a graveyard can be there. Like that can be a real sort of opportunity for you. Right. And like you won't be the beatdown. So it's not like I would ever attack with a creature land in any other circumstance, but to get rid of their reanimator target, to get rid of their Uro, to whatever, right. you will end up activating this land and attacking with it. The one I'm most bummed by is Lair of the Hydra. Having no keyword abilities on that big creature 
is kind of a bummer to me. I'd be, probably be pretty messed up if it had trample. And, you know, I, I don't like to play the game of, like, I wish they made cards more powerful because that just doesn't... There's, there's no point to make that argument. Yeah. But I wanted to like the green one because green is another color where you often end up with extra resources in my cube. You have extra mana you can dump into something, uh, which is why I'm, I'm high on cards like Turn Timber Symbiosis, which is a huge sorcery, which I would normally never put in my cube. But the fact that sometimes you draw it and you just have a bunch of extra mana because your green deck drew a bunch of ramp and not much to do with it, and the fact that this only becomes a big thing, it just basically it's chump blocked. This basically becomes a, a copy of the Abyss for X and a green every turn. Hey, the Abyss does work. It does something. So that's the one I was like, I wanted to like. I think it was the last one spoiled. And then I was kind of like, eh, this was not going to be for me. But overall, I think it's a really strong cycle. And I agree with you, Anthony. I think creature lands offer some cool flexibility. And I historically have been off them in my main queue because of my pathological aversion to tapped lands. These only airing taps sometimes uh, makes them much more palatable to me. Totally. I think the other thing that's worth mentioning about these man lands is if you're playing a cube and you often find that players have a lot of extra sideboard cards and you're kind of disappointed that like a lot of these cards are just not being played, adding creature lands is a great way to just activate more of the cards that you actually draft because you don't take a, a spell slot for it. Yeah, absolutely. That's true of any kind of lands, whether they're utility lands, creature lands, fixing lands, just... Right. I, I, this is, I think, one of the cube design level ups is that if you just find that, oh, the worst 10% of all my cards are ne- never getting played. Because if you're in blue-black, you're just going to have enough playables. You're not going to play this universally less appealing blue card or black card or whatever. Just cut those cards. Put more lands in. That makes uh, you know all the decks a little bit better because they can play more of the cards they draft in. All right. Next up, we have some really controversial, complicated cards. We have Power Word Kill. And Portable Hole. So Power Word Kill is uh, actually a pretty straightforward card. It's one and a black for an instant. Destroy target. Non-angel, non-demon, non-devil, non-dragon creature. (laughs) Really interesting text. So basically it just kills anything unless you have uh, one of these sort of iconic creature types of the different colors. We've seen lots of different Doomblade variants. Or maybe at this point we should really call them terror variants. Uh, But it's just a two mana black instant that kills almost everything. I think there's not a ton to say here. People who want more Doomblade variants are going to play another Doomblade variant. It's going to work most of the time. I'm really not excited about that extra text. To me, it's just noise. It's going to, you know, have some awkward feel-bads occasionally when it can't hit a Gristle Brand. I'm much more interested in just playing cleaner cards. But if you want more powerful removal, it's an option. My thing about Power Word Kill is... First of all, I should say, I am not excited when I see a terror variant anymore. I used to look forward to them because I ran many of them in my cube and was always looking for more options to get rid of creatures at two mana. And my curve has gotten low enough now that two mana removal, while still very strong, like I'm not like saying go for the throat is not a good card. It is a good card. And this would be a very good card if I put it in my cube as well. But I have so many options and I'm already not playing all the options available to me. And so like more options here is just not the most exciting thing. Even if I was excited for more two-mana removal options in black, this is among the most uh, irritating type of restriction to me because it is somewhat arbitrary, out of your control, and also requires you to like read a bunch of type lines and text on cards. Like, oh, canvas hit devils and demons and spirits. Like, you have to like read the thing and actually remember what all the sort of types are, and just this very annoying to keep track of. It's like it's like the accounting type of complexity that I don't like on cards. So I'm not playing power word kill even though i'm in a power optimized cube and i just it's just not for me i don't think if you want it you want it if you are the person who likes it for the flavor go for it otherwise that's all i've got to say 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny. As my curve has gotten lower and lower in my cube, you know, the tempo advantage gain from using a two-mana removal spell on a creature has just gotten less and less, where now very oftentimes you're using a two-mana spell to remove a two-drop or a three-drop instead of four drops and five drops, and it makes those cards a lot worse. Like, I, I am much more excited about, you know, cards like Fatal Push and Blood Chief's Thirst and stuff like that now than I am about more Doomblade variants. So And, and those kinds of restrictions are a lot more interesting. So, so our, much our next card we have here is Portable Hole. So this is one white mana for an artifact. When it enters the battlefield, exile target nine land permanent and opponent controls with mana value two or less until Portable Hole leaves the battlefield. So this is kind of just like an Oblivion Ring for small things. And it's also a restrictive card, but in a way that's meaningful. You get yes. rewarded for this extreme efficiency with this restriction that it really only performs early in the game or in the context of like specific small utility things. Because um, mana value is very strongly correlated to a card's impact. Like right. that, that is how the game is balanced. Typeline is largely flavor. It's largely storytelling. Uh, you know, sometimes there's some connection. Like, you know, angels and dragons are very likely to fly. So you could say power word kill will miss on a higher density of flyers or something if you wanted to. But but yeah, it's just it's kind of an arbitrary thing. It's not directly correlated to p impact on the game. Right. So with Portable Hole, you're going to be making meaningful decisions because either you're an aggressive deck and you care about things in the early game and, and getting rid of blockers, or you're a slower deck, but you care about having that early interaction to stabilize you. Uh, the fact that it's an artifact is also, I think, pretty cool. We've seen increasingly uh, a larger amount of artifact matter stuff in white, um, including in Modern Horizons too. And uh, this is just another cool little option. It's funny, if you went back two years, I think I would have been very excited for Power Word Kill in my cube, and I would have completely overlooked Portable Hole and said, this is not good enough. It doesn't do it enough for me to be playing it. And now where I sit today, I'm totally opposite. i very excited about Portable Hole, not into Power Word Kill. Historically, I have been not into the kind of answerable removal you get from Oblivion Rings. Like, to me, one of the most tilting play patterns is... You're playing some control deck, you are leaning on your Oblivion Rings and Banishing Lights for removal, and your opponent just has a Reclamation Sage. And, you know, for free, they get to completely undo your removal. You accidentally made one of their cards way better by, you know, playing this enchantment they could remove. It's just like, you have to build your deck and draft and play, assuming that removal is going to work, because there's no other option. You can't, there's no valuable lines to play if you assume it's not going to work or going to be removed. And then sometimes it's just removed, which is a big bummer. My first change of heart on this effect, sort of, came with Mesmeric Fiend variants, like Mez Fiend and Brain Maggot and Kite Sail Freebooter. And I like those cards a lot more than Oblivion Ring. And they're for, for a couple reasons. One of them is that they are easier to remove. They're just creatures. So there's more ways to remove them than there are to remove artifacts and enchantments. It makes it less of a random feel bad when somebody has an artifact or enchantment removal spell because creature removal is pretty prevalent in my own environment. So, so a lot of what you're saying there is just like the expectations are important. Expectations are different. They're also cheaper. They're all two mana. Uh, well, at least all the ones I play are two mana variations instead of three mana variations, which means that the tempo loss of getting blown out by removal is significantly less, 33% less. And more importantly, I think the way they play, it's more about a tempo advantage than it is about answering something. Like if I'm paying three mana in my environment for Oblivion Ring, it better answer the thing. Like, I'm, I'm spending three mana. I'm not spending three mana for, like, a, you know, a tempo play. I'm not going to spend three mana for what is effectively a bounce spell. But you can spend two mana on something that basically works like that. And the best way to describe this, I think, is that I think newer players, when they're playing with Mesmeric Fiend and Brain Maggots, these are the, you know, creatures that enter the battlefield and they take a card from your opponent's hand until they leave the battlefield. They very often will see their opponent's hand and say, well, I have to take your removal spell because then you can, if I don't take it, you can just immediately remove this thing and get the card back. 
but that's actually great. <laughs> like, right. If, it, if they yeah. use the removal spell, the removal spell has still been taken, but permanently, and also they've sequenced weirdly. That's a great point. Right, right. If you can make them use the removal spell on a two mana one one or a two mana one two flyer and also change their sequencing because you took the card they would have played that turn instead, their signet or whatever you want, whatever you took, that's an amazing sequence that really benefits you and, and is actually good. I think you have to think about those more as tempo plays. And that's where Portable Hole really shines. Portable Hole, to me, is extremely efficient. It's, I think of it very similarly to Fatal Push. Uh, you know, Fatal Push has the upside of maybe sometimes being able to remove creatures that cost up to four mana value if something's left the battlefield that turn, if you trigger Revolt. This has the upside of being able to hit non-creature permanents. So it has a similar... I think you can kind of put them on the scale and weigh them similarly. It's a different kind of upside, but, you know... And to me, I don't mind at all that this is answerable. I actually think a lot of times people won't bother to answer it because you only invested one mana in it and you remove something inherently kind of small. Like, I mean, there's some circumstances where, like, sure, if you put a Tarmogoyf under it, it gets to the late game. Now the thing comes back as a 6-7. Then they might be able to answer it and it might be advantageous. But I was thinking about this line. Just imagine you're playing a green deck. I'm playing a blue-white control deck. I portable hole your mana dork on turn one. You get to turn three. You have a Reclamation Sage in hand. You can now blow me out you can answer this removal on your turn three do you want to play a reclamation sage and get a 2-1 and your mana dork back or do you just want to play a nissa voice of zendikar and obviously it depends on all the other sort of considerations in the game and what's going on what's in your hand but i think oftentimes you're just going to say i'd rather have a nissa voice of zendikar right now than i want that one one back because portable hole was really like a tempo play totally so i'm really into it uh, i don't want to blabber on too much because we have a lot to talk about but i think portable hole is great it's exactly the kind of design i really like and power word kill is powerful but I'm not into it. It's not the kind of card I'm looking for for my environment. I'm not looking for more cards like that. Portable Hole is also nice in that it, I think it scales really well with the environment. It's obviously going to be better the, the faster the format is, but I think that's sort of a separate axis from power level. And you can be playing at a pretty low power level, and this is still you know a reasonable, effective card. But at the, the highest power level, it's also very reasonable, which I like. Yeah, and the reason we're talking about these cards at the top, uh, these are the two most popular cards by our community responses. So... We have 50% of our unrestricted testers are playing Power Word Kill, and 71% of the peasant testers are playing Power Word Kill. Portable Hole, 46% of unrestricted testers, and 43% of peasant testers. So, two most popular cards in the set. I don't think it's confusing as to why that is. They are generic. They are removal. They can fit in any environment. They are powerful. They don't fit with any of the existing set mechanics. They just work really well. And so, they are kind of standouts just in terms of the number of people that are testing them compared to all the other cards in the set. For the rest of the cards, we're going to go in color order and just kind of tackle the ones that, again, are either interesting to the community or interesting to us or otherwise worth talking about. And the first one is Dancing Sword. This is one and a white for an artifact equipment. The equipped creature gets plus two, plus one, and it has equipped one. Already a pretty good rate, I think. It's a little better stat boost than Bone Splitter at a little more cost. You're paying two up front instead of one to play it, and it does require white mana. But plus two, plus one for equip one is really, really strong. And then it has this important ability, which is when the equipped creature dies, you may have Dancing Sword become a 2-1 construct artifact creature token with flying and ward 1. And then it stops becoming an equipment once it becomes a creature. I think this card is really great. I'm playing it in my own cube. I We've talked before about this issue of equipment is powerful to have access to because in your aggressive decks, it can turn your cheap creatures, which you are going to have a lot of them because you're trying to be proactive, and they are inherently going to be pretty bad draws in the late game. If you get to turn six, you're going to draw your one mana 2-1 or whatever, and it's not going to look that great. 
And equipment is great because it can turn all of those late draws into relevant threats. Now you have a 4-3 or a 4-2 or something. It gets much more... It's a much bigger problem for your opponent. It demands some kind of answer or some kind of trade in combat. And importantly, repeatably. So you can right. Just turn doing multiple, that. you know, cheap, junky things into actual things that can trade. But one of the costs of equipment, especially in higher power or interaction-dense environments, is that they can become a liability if your opponent has enough removal to just keep you off of creatures. And now you have equipment, which requires creatures in play to do anything... And because your opponent has enough removal, they just can basically make that card a blank card and turn their removal into, you know, a two for one because they get rid of your one creature. Now your equipment is also irrelevant. God forbid you draw your two equipments, you know, in your early hand. And now you just have to pray you can stick a creature to make any of your cards relevant. So cards like Dancing Sword are in a similar class to me as cards like Ancestral Blade in that it's equipment, but it comes with other upside. And the upside here is that when a creature dies, you can just turn it into a creature. And now your equipment is a creature instead. Right, so I think the the equip one is really what's important here. For a power level perspective, yeah, I agree. I I think just being, you know, an equip one with a plus two to power actually forces a lot of trades. I think that's most of the power of this card. But even if the turning into a creature is only relevant 20% of the time, that's, I think, a really critical 20%. That just bumps up the the fact that there's so much less cost to putting this in your deck. And especially if you're talking about those kinds of play patterns you're describing of, I put this on my 1-1, I trade with something. I put this on my 1-1, I trade with something. If that's your plan, then being able to say, okay, well, I'm out of one ones. Let me now make this a flying creature. Just lets you force through and give you that reach and that last bit of damage you might need. This is exactly the kind of card I like to include in my cube where it gives you a lot of choices. You know, when do I play this? What do I equip it to? Do I turn it into a creature when Mm -hmm. that equip creature dies? You know, all those kinds of questions are come up every turn. You get to decide all regularly how you're going to move this equipment around, what you're going to do with it. But it's a relatively simple card. It's a lot of choices, but it's not like a big menu of options and stuff that are going to be confusing and overwhelming to you. Just, I mean, just imagine like you're playing an aggressive deck, you're playing red-white, uh, you know, your opponent board wipes, and you're like, all right, well, I'll turn my deck and sword into a flyer, and then uh, untap, and I'll activate my Den of the Bugbear and attack you for, uh, what, six, right? Uh, six yeah. or seven. Six. I forget how big the bug yeah, is. Yeah, it's a three-two plus the one-one goblin plus a two-one in the air. Like you have a whole board again. Now you have a two-one flyer and a goblin, and you attack for six. Right after a board wipe. So I think it's great. Um, it's not insanely powerful, and we don't see a huge abundance of people testing it. So it is one of the more popular cards. We have 20% of unrestricted cubers are testing this card. It's not a powerhouse for the most powerful cubes necessarily, but I think it could totally work there. I mean, it's, it's kind of interchangeable for me on power level with a lot of aggressive two drops. So the question is just, what kinds of options do you want your aggressive decks to have? And for me, the answer is options like Dancing Sword provides. So obviously equipment just works in most aggressive decks. Uh, You put it in there, put it on your creature, it'll work. If you are interested in sort of an equipment theme, uh, obviously Dancing Sword is great because it's another one of these options that uh, if you draw too many equipments, it mitigates the equipment flood problem. Right. Um, But also if you're interested in really pushing equipment as a theme, we also have, you know, some really powerful equipment like plate armor, especially at lower power, and things like Bruinor Battle Hammer, which gives you some free equips that can, I think, really uh, level up that kind of play pattern if you're looking for it. Yeah, equipment is a theme in the set, and so if that is a theme of your cube, there's definitely a lot of more options here beyond just Dancing Sword. I do want to say one thing about this card, which is that I think occasionally it will be kind of clunky because, again, it's an equipment that mitigates that equipment flood problem unless you have no board and draw it in the late game, and then it's still right. just it an equipment. It doesn't totally give you the free thing like uh, something like Barb Spike. On the other hand, if 
you know it's in your deck and that's part of your plan, maybe you don't just, you know, send in your 1-1s just to get an extra point here or there. Uh, it just gives them a little bit of extra value. Right. And the other thing it does, though, it's not just the top deck thing. It's the, the worst case for a lot of equipment is your thing gets removed in response to the equip. And this that really happening here is, is gonna that's gonna happen, and you're not gonna be able to turn this into your two one. You have to stick this to a creature in order to have the option to turn it into a two one later on. So that is the thing I'm most wary of about it. Just I think that that line could be a little bit clunky, but I'm excited to play it and test it and see how it goes. Next up, two sort of speed round cards here. I want to touch briefly on Loyal Warhound, one and a white for a three one with vigilance, and when it enters the battlefield, if an opponent controls more lands than you, search your library for a basic planes card. Put it onto the battlefield, tapped, then shuffle. I could not find room for this card in my cube, but it interests me for one specific reason, which is that it is the rare aggro two-drop that is better when you are on the draw, which I think is an interesting depth to give to aggressive decks. Similar to Dancing Sword, it's kind of interchangeable on power level with other aggro two-drops. It's not, you know, the cream of the crop, but it is a three-powered two-drop. It will do work. It will attack and block. So it's really a matter of, like, do you want to mitigate the polarity of aggro matchups when aggro is on the draw? If so, I think Loyal Warhound is a reasonable uh, addition. And 14% of our unrestricted cubers uh, kind of agree and are going to be testing the card. This is also obviously relevant if you have a multiplayer cube that's trying to emulate that commander experience where like ramp is really critical and you want more colors to have access to it. Uh, this is a pretty easy include. Yep. And then I want to touch briefly on Monk of the Open Hand. This is one mana for a 1-1 creature elf monk. And it has Flurry of Blows. Whenever you cast your second spell each turn, put a plus one, plus one counter on Monk of the Open Hand. I was surprised to see how many people are testing this card. 12% of our unrestricted cube designers and 19% of our peasant cube designers. I think this card is overrated. I think it's going to be somewhat more difficult to activate than people want. Like, sure, if you play it on turn one, you're going to get to activate it a couple times, probably. But the fact that you need to activate it twice before it's better than something like Isamaru is very real. It's got no other abilities. It's going to be a horrible draw in the late game, which one drops already are. But this one's going to be especially bad because it's going to be just a 1-1. One, one. Um, this is pretty low for me on the list of like the canonical list of like aggressive one drops I'm interested in. And yeah, I see a lot of people that are interested in testing this. So do you disagree? Do you think this card has... A lot of potential. I don't have very strong feelings. I, I really do like this second spell a turn mechanic. I do so too. So I'm excited to see more options to fill that out. And it does have a real ceiling. You know, if you get a second counter on it and then turn three, you attack with it. Do you trust your opponent doesn't have two instants they can they can cast? Yes. Or, you know, I, maybe, I definitely trust my opponent maybe, doesn't maybe have they, two instants. Uh, first main phase casts a, like a cheap creature and still have mana up. Like, I, I think there are play patterns that where gets this is a little just going to start to become a little bit difficult to block. So I, I don't hate the card overall. And obviously, uh, everyone loves plus one, plus one counters. That was the one thing I'm going to say. I think the one place where this makes sense to me is if you have a deep plus one, plus one counter theme. As a cheap one drop that can get plus one, plus one counters, uh, you know, it's nowhere near as good as something like a Pelt Collector, but I think it fills a similar role and there are not that many one drops that come with inherent plus one plus one counters in all of Magic's history. So maybe that accounts for most of the people that are testing it. But I think on raw power level and compared to like other aggressive one drops, this is very low for me. But if you have plus one plus one counter synergies, I think it's quite potent. Have you ever met a flump? No. Okay. We've played a little bit of d and I mean, but... <laughs> yes. And he uh, took my wallet. I, I don't know. No, flumps are nice, apparently. Oh. Uh, we've played a little bit of D&D, but I don't think either of us have ever had the, the fortune of encountering a flump. Here in Magic, it is one in a white for an 0-4 Defender Flying Jellyfish. And whenever it's dealt damage, you and target opponent each draw a card. 
I don't think this is going to find I'm a out. home in <laughs> most uh, one, 1v1 cubes, but I think if you are playing a multiplayer cube, this is pretty interesting. I'm generally not a big fan of, you know, the politics of, hey, you know, attack me and uh, I'll let you draw a card. But even if you're just, you know, playing reasonably, uh, someone who's clearly behind attacking you with a 1-1, you have that opportunity to, you know, try and draw out of uh, the person who's ahead on board. So I think in multiplayer cubes, I'd actually be interested in how this played out. I think a lot of people like those politics. I agree. It's not my favorite part of multiplayer cubes. Bigger criticism for me, I'm not into O4s with flying in a multiplayer cube. I do not want to further encourage people just turtling up and uh, not attacking their opponent and building up their own board state. That's a great point. But some people are into that. Some turtles are, I guess. Ask yourself. Am I not turtly enough for the turtle club? All right. Next up, we have Nadar, Selfless Paladin. So obviously a big aspect of this whole set is venture into a dungeon. And I think that that's going to be pretty polarizing. Some cube designers are going to say, well, I want the venture of the dungeon to work. Uh, let's cram all these cards in. Some are going to be kind of off it. I actually do like Nadar, Selfless Paladin, which is three mana, two and a white for a legendary dragon knight. Uh, it's a 3-3. Three, three. It has vigilance. When it enters the battlefield or attacks, you venture, venture into the dungeon. And if you've completed a dungeon, other creatures you control get plus one, plus one. This is actually kind of self-contained if you kind of want Very just a little bit of dungeon. 12 years dungeon. All of you. Dungeon. Seven years, no trials. And your uh, curve is, you know. Little bit of dungeon! <laughs> and your power level is low enough that a 3-3 three, three for 3 that does some small effects uh, is reasonable. Then I think this is actually a reasonable card to include. And if you are trying to go deep on the dungeon mechanic, then this is, I think, going to be one of the key cards. We have... 6% of our unrestricted cube designers testing this card, which is not a lot, but frankly, the set does not have a ton of standouts in terms of testers, so it's you know kind of up there on the list. And the fact that 6% of people are testing this, but very few other venture cards break anywhere into those numbers tells me that most people playing this card are not building a venture into the mechanic. A venture, venture into the mechanic. A venture into the dungeon. It's <laughs> a cool meta Themed cube. They just think this card is individually powerful enough. And I agree. I think it totally is. We didn't mention yet, we did do an entire previous episode all about just the mechanics and the design of Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. And I recommend listening to that as a precursor to this because we're not going to repeat ourselves on our thoughts on all these individual mechanics. But since we recorded that episode, we have actually played with these cards. We've had pre-release here in our local game store. And I, I was not high on Venture into the Dungeon already, but I thought it was kind of an interesting way to make these modal mechanics, these modal abilities that can trigger in different ways. I'm significantly lower on it after playing with it for the reason that the way it's designed is an individual venture is not worth a whole lot. You know, the first one's worth a scry one is kind of the best thing you can do. And then there's obviously a whole table of other different things you can trigger with it. But each thing you're triggering individually, not until you get to the late stages of some of those dungeons does it get as good as drawing a card or something like that. So individual ventures are not self-contained value that's very high. And there's a lot of choices associated with them, right? And we talked about how the choices are always limited to two options beyond the first option of just which which dungeon do you choose. And that's a nice way of simplifying that a little bit. But I overall found when playing with Venture, with and against Venture of the Dungeon cards that very often it was just, all right, we're always going to go into the Lost Tomb of Phandelver. That was just the one that seemed like it was the best kind of baseline value dungeon, which kind of minimizes what the mechanic can be. But my bigger criticism is that the individual ventures mattered so little that I didn't find myself feeling like it was worth it to expend mental energy thinking about, okay, 
My opponent, I can see, can venture one time next turn. Maybe they have a way to venture two times in their hand. If they do venture two times, what are the different paths they could choose? And based on what they choose, how does that change my sequencing on my turn, right? Like, the strategy of the game, as it relates to venture mechanics, just felt like way too much mental load for such little payoff. Because, again, it was like, are they going to make a goblin token or a treasure token? How does that change how I sequence that plays on this turn? And it felt like it was just not worth it for me to expend my my mental energy to figure that out. And it was basically just kind of ignoring the venture mechanic and whatever happened, happened. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I don't know if it's a problem. Like, I, I do agree it is... There is a lot of negative to the fact that the Lost Mine of Fan- Fandelver is, like, the dungeon you go into most of the time. But I think that's actually, like, for, for my taste of the uh, venture mechanic, kind of okay. Like, if if, sure. if that complexity was really, really relevant and all of these were chosen equally at different times, I, th- I think that's kind of, like complexity would be a bit much especially like it's really nice play. that each of the dungeons has like a bit of a shortcut it's like you have the super aggro dungeon where it's like right. you only do this if you are like very proactive and you think you're gonna get your opponent dead very quickly or you have a big payoff for completing a dungeon you have the lost mind of fandelver dungeon which is like the default kind of absent other reasons to go into a different dungeon and then to me the uh, the dungeon of the mad mage is the last one is what's called right uh it is the dungeon of the mad mage that one is like the you're the venture deck one because it's way deeper there's way more payoff if you can get all the way through it but the first couple like tiers of it do a lot less pound for pound than the lost mind of fandelver and so yeah, that's kind of like the you're the venture deck one and maybe you can venture into that one so i like that they have the shorthands to make them a little bit more approachable but totally. but yeah I, you know, I, we, we said before that Venture is not inherently a parasitic mechanic. I still completely stand by that. I think if you want to put some of these Venture cards in your cube, you can. I think there is a significant cost of just accounting and complexity. Like, if you have three Venture cards, now you have to, like, keep these dungeon cards, people can think about them. And to me, the gameplay of, like, knowing my opponent had access to some number of Ventures and some number of options from those Ventures... You know, I mean, compared to, like, a Planeswalker, right? Like, a Planeswalker is similarly modal to like a repeatable trigger on venture but generally planeswalker abilities are very relevant it's like am i is my opponent going to uptick or downtick their planeswalker that i will think about i will put myself in their shoes and say why would i want to uptick or downtick it what could be in their hand that would change that decision and if they uptick or downtick how does that change my sequencing like that to me is what magic is about like those kinds of questions and thoughts and i did not find myself feeling like it was reasonable to do that on Venture into the Dungeon, at least not at a casual level. And it doesn't seem like it'd be fun to do at a competitive level, even if you deemed it to be worthwhile. Hey, there are bad Planeswalkers, too. The last white card we want to talk about is Priest of the Ancient Lore. This is two and a white for a 2-1. When it enters the battlefield, you gain one life and draw a card. A nice, clean common that is being tested by some of our unrestricted cube designers, 7% of them but being especially loved by our peasant cube designers, 43% of which are testing this, and 100% of our pauper cube designers are testing this card. Anthony, at what point are pauper and peasant cubes just going to be creatures that enter the battlefield and draw a card? Are, are we not already there? We're pretty close. I, You know, <laughs> these cards are good, but every time I play a pauper and peasant cube, I feel like, okay, great, everyone's just playing... Just play the two-for-ones. You just play a Gravedigger variants, and you just play two-for-ones that draw a card, and it's just like... Uh, I, I overall like these kinds of cards where, like, the entire value of your three drop is not tied up in the body because you get something back, right? Like, that is a part of the game design I like. But I do think at a certain extreme, it becomes very tedious. And I don't know. I, it's, a, it's a good card. I, I, I like it in the sense that I like this kind of design. I do think at a certain density, it's not fun anymore <laughs> to, just, to just be, you know, playing relatively non-impactful bodies with no risk and churning through your library and uh you know drawing more of that more of the same 
All right. Well, your hatred of uh, certain cube design philosophies aside, I, I mean, it just touches a lot of different things. If you care about life gain, if you care about drawing cards, if you want uh, it is cool that has more bodies it. that can carry equipment, this this card's just going to fit in lots of places. Yeah, it's cool that it has that gain one life because, you know, that one life is very rarely going to, absent some other synergy, change the tide of the game. But it's just another thing to key off on as a cube designer. Now, if you have life gain triggers, then it's another way to actually trigger those things, which, which exactly, is nice. Yeah. That's our white cards, which is actually our deepest color in this uh, this set. So from here on, it's just smaller sections of cards. We actually only have one blue card from Avengers and the Forgotten Realms to talk about, and that is Demi Lich. It is blue, 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 blue. That's right. Four blue pips for a creature, a skeleton wizard. It's a 4-3. has a bunch of abilities here. So the first is that it costs a blue mana less to cast for each incident sorcery spell you've cast this turn. So that initially very intimidating mana cost is not necessarily as bad as it looks whenever it attacks you exile up to one target instant or sorcery card from your graveyard copy it you may cast the copy you are gonna have to pay for that copy so you gotta spend mana to do it and you may cast damage from your graveyard by exiling four instant and or sorcery cards from your graveyard in addition to paying its other costs which is the mana costs which again are discounted it's a complicated card. It's kind of a payoff for a Spells Matter archetype, especially a very cheap Spells Matter archetype. If you have a Xerox-style deck where you have lots of one-mana cheap spells, you know you can envision getting this for very cheap and then getting it back for very cheap. What do you think of this compared to other similar options, Anthony? There's a lot that I do like about this card. I, I like sort of... For example, when... it's a skeleton with a bunch of diamond teeth and eyeballs. That's very cool. Can't <laughs> say anything bad about that. I like when, you know, we have complicated cards, but they the... the effects interact with each other and sort of tell a story and this you know you cast a bunch of spells you cast your demi lich for free or for very cheap and then you get to start using those spells that you cast and put in your graveyard that being said it's still a lot of complexity i think it's going to be pretty hard to make work in your typical singleton environment and the cost still looks scary to me even though i know it's not quite as scary as it is that being said i feel like if you are really interested in this sort of like all-in spells matter cast a ton of things uh have a good turbo time I think you can absolutely make this work. I think this is going to be very much to some people's tastes, but it's not something I'm looking at specifically. I think it's perfectly viable as a like payoff for those Xerox-style decks, like like any Delve card and stuff like that. I think it like does the same job and does it pretty well. And so I think if you have those kind of decks in your cube, you can play it and it would be totally fine. There's a couple of things I don't like about it. So aesthetically, you know, the fact that it's got those four blue mana symbols on the top right, you are going to want to be a pretty heavily blue to play this card, but it's worth noting that you can play instants and sorceries of any color to reduce that blue mana cost. So you can be pretty evenly blue-red deck, play two red instants and sorceries, and then pay two blue for this 4-3 that buys back cards from your graveyard. That's how it can play out. So I don't like the aesthetics of it looking so blue, but in practice not being that blue, because you can just play other sorceries and instants of other colors and then pay very little blue mana or no blue mana for this card. Like, I mean, it's pretty blue, though. Like, what, what Are you going to have four adventurous impulses? I would not be surprised if someone could construct a constructed deck that maybe even had no blue in it at all that could totally play Demi Lich. Okay, I'll buy that. Because, again, you just got to trigger all these spell casts and then you can get this thing for free. So I, I don't love that aspect of it. And then the card you get out of it, this 4-3 that, you know, basically lets you flashback a thing every turn when it attacks, is also not the kind of payoff I want. A 4-3 with no no abilities, no, like, you know, keyword abilities four, in combat. We're looking at this wall of text and you're saying no abilities. Sorry, no, like, keyword <laughs> abilities in combat, you know, no, no relevant combat abilities. And then a very sort of projected, like... Your opponent will see this coming and have every opportunity to try and interact with it and stop that from happening. And you only get it when you attack. So if you're on the blocks, if you're defending, 
then it's not going to do anything for you. It's just going to be a 4-3. Compare this to something like Merktide Regent, which is, I think, a very similar slot in the Magic universe. It goes into the same kind of deck. It does a similar kind of thing. And I so much more prefer the play patterns of Merktide Regent, which is mechanically, I think, quite a bit simpler. It visually looks like an easier splash, as it were. Like, you don't have to be super deep blue to play Merktide Regent. And what you get out of it, instead of being this complicated creature, which maybe you get value from, maybe you don't, you just get a big flyer. You get a big dumb flyer from Murktide Region. But that's the kind of payoff I want for having already jumped through all these other hoops. This is like, you jump through hoops to then jump through more hoops and maybe, you know, keep getting value out of this card. So I'm not testing it. I, I think it is perfectly viable if you like those sort of spells matter, you know, spell slinger kind of archetypes. It's just a matter of, is this the kind of card you want to be paying people off with? And for me, it's not. I want to talk about two commander cards very briefly from the Adventures in Forgotten Realms commander set. And those are Phantom Steed and Min Wily Illusionist, both blue cards. Phantom Steed is three and a blue for a 4-3 with Flash. When it enters the battlefield, exile another target creature you control until Phantom Steed leaves the battlefield. And whenever Phantom Steed attacks, create a tapped attacking token that's a copy of the exiled creature, except it's an illusion in addition to its other types. Sacrifice that token at the end of combat. This is kind of like a blue restoration angel-y kind of card in that and a lot of times you're going to want to use this to save a thing from removal or save something from you know dying in combat you just flash this in and save your thing didn't we even get a card that's almost exactly like that in uh call time and it was like the the worst restoration angel yeah yeah yeah. it was glorious protector i believe was the name of the card um, which is a, a kind of play pattern that i kind of actually really like the idea of i can save a creature and then later on if you have removal for this i i get that value back is is kind of a cool play pattern yeah, so I, that's what it is as a baseline, which I think is cool. The reason this card jumped out at me is because it's in blue, which we don't see this effect in blue ever. This effect is pretty much always in white that it's ever been printed before. And then the cool upside of getting able to turn around and attack your opponent and then get a token that's of that creature it's, that's tapped and attacking, retrigger your end of the battlefield abilities, retrigger your lead the battlefield abilities. It's the kind of card that I think a lot of people will like because it has this flexibility in what it actually, how it actually plays out. It's like you can combine it with other things. It has lots of potential to be combined with stuff to do cool and broken things. Right. That said, very few people have filled out our Adventures in the Forgotten Realms Commander survey, so I don't know if that's uh, a thing people are actually playing, but it's a cool card that I think has a decent power ceiling. Um, you kind of want to be in a more proactive blue deck. Like If you're playing this in a control deck, it's not going to do much for you, but if you're playing a mid-rangey or a proactive blue deck, I think it's quite good. Similarly... A card I've heard no one talking about, but I think is interesting. I should say neither of these cards are making it into my own cube, but I think they're interesting enough to talk about. Is Min Wily Illusionist. It's one blue-blue for a 1-3 Gnome Wizard. Whenever you draw your second card each turn, create a 1-1 blue illusion creature token with this creature gets plus 1 plus 0 for each other illusion you control. And whenever an illusion you control dies, you may put a permanent card with mana value less than or equal to that creature's power from your hand onto the battlefield. I think this card is quite powerful. 3 mana 1-3 is not good, but whenever you draw your second card each turn, making a 1-1 illusion creature is very good. And it's not just a 1-1. You know, it's a 1-1, then a 2-1, then a 3-1, then a 4-1. And when the illusion creature dies, you get to put permanence into play. I think it's just gravy. Like, I think you shouldn't even think of that really when you're thinking about how you evaluate the card. But, you know, you compare it to something like, um, what's the blue-red enchantment from Throne of Eldraine with the Improbable Alliance. Thank you. That's the one that whenever you draw a second card, you make a 1-1 Fairy Flyer. And to me, this is like very similar. It's that it's, the ability is a little bit better. It's a mono blue card, which is already the color it's going to be most likely to draw a second card each turn. And it's stapled to a body, a 1-3, which can at least, you know, block your opponent's 
aggressive two ones uh, profitably and keep them off your back while you're making tokens. I think this card has a lot of potential. And I think if you are doing some sort of spell slinger thing or some card draw tribal or, you know, something like that, or you really like a blue token deck to be a thing, I think this card is talked about less than maybe it should be. I think it's an interesting, powerful card. Yeah, the ceiling is extremely high here, and there's a lot of interesting play patterns. I feel like a lot of the commander cards, though, they do have this, like, big wall of text, and especially walls of text that don't quite hang together as well, uh, for yeah. my taste. So, like, It's I, not I, elegant. Like, what's exactly, going on yeah. with that second ability? Why do I get to put permanence into play? I, I don't quite get it from a flavor perspective or a mechanical perspective, but... If you just ignore that, I think the card's pretty okay. And then that, as upside, is very relevant. Like, you get to chump block and just put a creature into play. Like, that's cool. Chump block, wonder, put a signet into play. I wonder if anyone actually supports Illusion Tribal as a, a cube theme. I'd love to see it if someone's doing it. That's it for blue. Blue, a little bit of a, a, little bit of a dud, maybe, uh, in this particular set. Do you disagree? I, I won't defend blue. I'll just say again that, you know, we're not trying to talk about every single card here. If you're interested in, you know, the treasures and the dice rolling and some of these more specific themes, dive in there. You'll find some cards. Speaking of clunky cards, we have <laughs> Eben Death Draco Lich. This is two black black for a 5-2 with flash and flying. And it enters the battlefield tapped, and you may cast Eben Death Draco Lich from your graveyard if a creature not named Eben Death Draco Lich died this turn. What deck wants this card, Anthony? We've talked about that, and I don't think either of us have a great answer. I don't know. It's the thing. I think this card is powerful. Like I, I said, it was inelegant. I think it is a little bit clunky, but I think a card's very powerful. It has a high ceiling. I mean, five power at instant speed for four mana. I mean, obviously, there's a battlefield tap. That makes a big difference, but that's a lot on a flyer. Like That's just a very relevant body. It's a four-turn clock. Yeah, it's not a surprise blocker, but flying is really good. Uh, we even found in some drafts of your cube just... I remember passing the turn and you being like, what's going on? What are you going to try and destroy? And then I'm like, well, I'm just going to cast this and you're dead next turn. So I, I think that the power level is there, especially if you're doing some kind of like aristocrat sacrifice theme that gives you a little bit more flexibility. But also if you just have like a lot of instant speed interaction and want more flexibility to have like a, a plan B in your black decks, uh, this is a reasonable card. Yeah, I could talk myself into being pretty happy playing this in an aggressive deck and being pretty happy playing this in a control deck. Not so much a mid rangey deck. I mean, I guess it depends on the kind of mid range. If I'm a removal dense mid range deck, then I'm more happy with it. Right, yeah. Um, but, like, this could be a control finisher. Like, it's just a 5 2 that's basically impossible to kill because every time you kill something of theirs, you get to cast it again. Plus, like, you can discard it and get it back. Right? So, yeah, so it's just, you know, free fodder to discard. All that said, I'm not testing it. I mean, it was in my proxy testing, which is why we got in some games with it, but, like, it did not make my actual Adventures in the Forgotten Realms cube edits. I just think it's, it's a lot of, like, again, kind of. It feels like hoops to jump through to make the four drop relevant because if I'm not getting to recur it, if I'm not getting to discard it, then I'm not super excited about just a four mana body, basically. It's just not where I really want to be. And while it is flexible in the sense of what we just said, like I'm happy to put it in a lot of decks. It doesn't it's not just an anger card, not just a control card. It's also gonna I feel like be the one of the least appealing options. Like, am I taking this over an efficient removal spell for any of those decks? No, never. Like, it's just, it's not going to be a high pick for me. And so it's not going to make it to my cube, I don't think. Fair enough. But I think if you're interested in it, it's going to pull its weight. I, we can't not talk about the gelatinous cube, right? I mean, it, it's one of now three cube staples. It is the best cube card in the set, <laughs> without a doubt. 
Uh, so I actually did do somebody really else like... make that joke before us. I'm sure they have. Someone did. Yeah, we got Delph's cube, we got Dublin cube, and now we got uh, Gelatinous cube. Yeah, the only cards you're obligated to include. Uh, so it's four mana, two black black for a four three. Uh, it has engulf when it enters the battlefield to exile a non ooze creature an opponent controls until Gelatinous cube leaves the battlefield, and it also has dissolve. You can pay the mana cost plus a black for uh, of the exiled creature. Or sorry. Yeah, of the exiled creature to put it into the its owner's graveyard. So basically, you can play it just as a banner for priest to get rid of one of your opponent's non-ooze creatures. I'm not crazy about that little restriction, but it's important so for flavor reasons. So I guess well, an ooze can't really ooze another ooze, right? It could, why not? It, it'd be weird. Just mix? <laughs> you know, they just mix. Uh, and mutate is not in the set. But then you can actually, if you have some extra mana, get rid of that creature completely. So what I like about this is that it's a Banisher Priest that can actually get into combat and can be a little bit of a mana sink. Okay, so flavor-wise, if it is an ooze that it engulfs, I think it should get plus one, plus one counters equal to its power toughness. You know, like get bigger based on the size of the ooze it I'm engulfs. I'm sure that early in and design, that that's what it was. shouldn't come back if the gelatinous <laughs> cube dies. They just become, you know, all one ooze. And both players share it if it was an opponent's creature. No, because this is, the, this is the, the dominant one. You know, it, it took over. So I think if you like a Ravenous Chupacabra, this is actually going to play out pretty well. Uh, and again, just as a tempo play, even if you have to block with it and lose the creature, the fact that it actually has a relevant amount of power makes it pretty reasonable. It's worth noting that the Banisher Priest effect was actually in black before it was ever in white. Faceless in Butcher. Oubliette? Oh, Faceless Faceless Butcher. Oubliette as well, a little bit. But Faceless Butcher is the first, I'm aware of, the earliest creature that exiles the thing on ETB until it leaves the battlefield. Uh, and that was an early black creature which I don't see anybody playing in their cubes really much these days. I mean, maybe old border cubes are pretty pretty excited about it, but beyond that, I don't see it much. We talked a lot about Oblivion Ring effects earlier. I don't like Banisher Priest for the same reason. Uh, it's just like easy to remove thing that you paid three mana for to try and get some advantage, and then it just gets killed. On the other hand, I really like Banisher Priest effects for that reason. The fact yeah. that they do offer more complexity and, and opportunities for exciting moments in the game. You say complexity, but the compl- it's not com- it's not complex. If I take your great thing and you have a removal spell, there's no complexity. Well, there's but no you strategy. want to set up when is the right time to use it. I mean... I, I don't think it's fair to you. I, I think it's very reasonable for you to say that is not the kind of like gameplay moments that you enjoy. I don't think it's reasonable to say everyone should enjoy those. No, I know. Worse. I just think that my opinions are great. Uh, and I have a different opinion. All right, let's talk real quick about Manticore. So it's four mana, three, and a black for a 2-1 with flash and flying. And it has tail spikes. When it enters the battlefield, destroy target creature and opponent controls. That was dealt damage this turn. This is obviously not a powerful card, but I really like this collection of effects. A flash flying, again, just gives you stuff to do with your mana if your uh, plan A didn't pan out on your opponent's turn. And I also really like this kind of effect for some reason of, like, destroying a wounded creature. I don't know why it appeals to me so much. It's flavorful. It's very flavorful. I think what also it does is it lets you either, you know, set up situations where you can... It's a kind of combat trick. Right. You can sort of bait your opponents into, well, do you have a combat trick or are you trying to bait me into using that next turn? Gives you some, like, opportunities to feel clever, I guess, which is cool. I think more than that, though, actually, it, it lets you turn creatures that otherwise are irrelevant into a resource. If I have a bunch of 1-1s that can no longer attack into your 4-4s, suddenly I can say, well, let me start getting in with these, and either my opponent might try and play around this, and I can just use those to force some damage through, or you will block, and now I've used my 1-1 as a resource to kill your bigger creature. The fact that this has flying is really what pushes over the edge to being like a cool card to me, that it can also just get through damage. Yeah, you can also just flash it in and trade with your opponent's 3-2. Absolutely. That counts too. 
yeah, it has a lot of little secret modes written on there and stuff it can do, which is which is nice. I like shambling gas. It's one I like black gas too. It's one black mana for a one-one creature zombie. When it dies, you either brave the stench, give target creature and opponent controls minus one minus one to end of turn, or search the body, create a treasure token. We've seen a fair number of one mana one ones that die to give something minus one minus one to end of turn. You're festering goblins, and there's other ones. Festering mummy, I think, is also one of them. Yeah. There's there's a couple cards that do that. It's a somewhat recurring thing in black. This is a huge upgrade to me, though. I mean, yeah. The the way that card reads normally is that okay, it's a one one that can trade for an X two in combat is what the kind of baseline of those festering cards are. Or sometimes, you know, you can jump block something and then kill something small that wasn't attacking that your opponent was trying to keep back and protect. Here, being able to make a treasure token, I think this card is just very strong. I mean, it's not obviously like, you know, the power level that I'm looking for for my main cube. But you play this on turn one and you're like reactive deck. Your opponent can't just swing into it with their 2-2 necessarily because giving you that treasure token... Well, first of all, you can trade with a 2-2 if you want. But even if they... Let's say they have a 3-3, right? And it's still in a couple early turns of the game. They were on the play. They played a Watch Wolf. You played a Shambling Ghast. Giving you that treasure token might be a huge cost. Like, you might be able to really right. take advantage of that tempo play to, like, jump ahead of your opponent and play something ahead of curve and kind of take over the game a little bit. At least, like, you know, really set them back pretty far. So I think the card is flexible. It has that relevant type I know people like. We don't see any statistically significant amount of unrestricted cube designers testing this card. 10% of the peasant designers are testing it, and 30% of the pauper designers are testing it. If I were peasant or pauper and I supported any kind of... not even It's not even just good in practice decks. I think it's, a, it's just a good card. I'd be more interested in this probably in peasant and pauper than we're seeing amongst our respondents. But I, I think the card is overperformed for me, and uh, it just is, it's quite good. I agree. I think when this kind of effect works, it can do a lot. But they do have a fail case, and this kind of just, like, gets rid of the fail case and even adds more flexibility if you're, you know, sacrificing permanence. This is going to generate two. Yeah. And to be clear, your opponent is going to attack you with the Watch Wolf in that situation. Like, it's not like they're going to be intimidated off of not doing it. But then you get, you know, you get a treasure. <laughs> they're get... not just going to say, well, I'm done with this game, can never attack you. Right. Now you get a treasure. You get a turn ahead of schedule. You get that free Lotus Petal to try and recover from the, how far behind you are. The last black card is White. This is one and a black for a 3-2, enters the battlefield tapped, it is a zombie soldier, and it has an ability to life drain. Whenever a creature dealt damage by white this turn dies, create a tapped 2-2 black zombie creature token and exile that card. I wanted to shout this out just because we talked about Dothy Voidwalker in our Modern Horizons 2 set review. Obviously a very, very powerful, aggressive black 2-drop, but one that I was conflicted about largely because of the double black casting cost the shadow and the basically all the text yeah, of the card. all of the text, every yeah. single every single word in the card had me conflicted because I, I don't like double black because it makes it harder to draft multicolored aggressive proactive decks in my environment which i want to encourage and i don't like shadow because it's not interactive and i don't like the fact that sometimes that dothy voidwalker is just going to have this coincidental line where it's just going to blow your opponent out you're just going to get to thought seize their you know, seven drop or six drop or something and then play it for free and your aggro two drop now just like turned into a Karn Liberated or whatever your cube supports for free, right? I, I don't like that random upside, all that extra text. White, I think, is going to play a similar role most of the time. It's an aggressive two drop for a black deck. It's a three two as well. It has upside, but it's way cleaner from my perspective than something like Dothy Voidwalker. And it's actually getting the, it's getting the nod over Voidwalker. I'm going to cut Voidwalker and put this in my cube because it's another... Good enough aggro. Like, the reason I ultimately played Voidwalker in addition to testing it and just wanting to see what it did is because I felt like 
my aggressive black decks needed a little bump. And I think this fills a similar role enough that I'm happy to cut Voidwalker and get rid of that noise and play patterns I don't like. I mean, this is basically two mana for a 3-2 that dies into another 2-2, right? Most of the time, yes. I think that's how it's going to play out because your 3-2 on turn two is going to trade with something if it dies. Like It's, yeah. it's not going to get you know eaten by a 4-4 that early in the game. And yeah, just going to die into a 2-2 and that's just two mana for five power over two bodies is a really good rate. Yeah, it's basically Tarmogoyf. It's basically Tarmogoyf. It's you heard a little it here bit, first. It's a little bit higher power than uh, most of the cubes that I'm designing, but uh, I do also really like these kinds of cards that are like, hey, usually I just die and make a 2-2, but if you have combat tricks, if you have like recover abilities or different ways to, to actually have it survive combat, that you can like generate this tremendous upside of actually generating Go with combat four. tricks, because your opponent's like, fine, I'll trade with it right, finally, you get your one zombie, and then Or equipment, oops. if you're trying to push an equipment theme, this just turns into an engine. Right. Put a dancing sword on this. All right, next up we got a Plundering Barbarian. This is a 3-mana for a 2-2. When it enters the battlefield, choose one. You can destroy target artifact, a.k.a. smash the chest, or you can make a treasure token by prying it open. I think this card is kind of interesting for a few reasons. Obviously, there's a big treasure theme in the set, so if treasure is something you specifically want to support in your environment, uh, we've got some other cards like uh, Kalane, which I actually found to play out really nicely, and Zorn, so definitely dig into the set uh, if you're looking for that. But even outside of that treasure theme, this card is pretty powerful. It's in a lot of environments, I feel like, artifacts are just so much more present than enchantments that this is basically just a, a red reclamation sage with the upside of you can instead just cash in that extra value for another treasure and get a big boost of speed on your next turn yeah it very nearly a strict upgrade over manic vandal which i know powered cube designers have considered that uh, you know quote-unquote staple for years that's just a three mana two two that enters the battlefield and only destroys an artifact i think it's got a different type line so we can't say it's a strict upgrade I'm skeptical of actually how good a Manic Vandal-like card is, even in powered environments. Like, on turn three, destroy their mocks. Did you really not already fall way behind because <laughs> they played a mocks? Like, it's possible. Like, I, I've never really totally understood. There's some card, There's a certain class of cards that people are like, oh, if you're powered, you want this. If you're not powered, you don't. And I've heard that about Manic Vandal before, and I don't understand that logic because the presence of, you know, those six really good artifacts, one of which you're never going to hit with Manic Vandal anyway... That doesn't change the value of the card to me uh, in any meaningful way in the aggregate. Now, if you have a very, very present artifact deck and lots of artifacts in the environment, you know, just as part of one of the themes you're going for, then a card like that gets more defensible. But either way, Plenty Barbarian is, is a much bigger upgrade because the downside of that card is that sometimes you got to play your Manic Vandals with 3-mana 2-2 because your opponent has nothing in play you can hit and you just can't afford to not do anything. And here, being able to play it as a 3-mana 2-2 that makes a treasure token is a very reasonable upside. It'll fix your mana when you're stuck on your third color or your splash and cost a little bit less because you get that mana back immediately. Yeah, I think it'll play well in some environments. One question I have about this card, and maybe this is a bigger topic for another day, but it's kind of like this is just a 2-mana 2-2 because it rebates you one of the mana, right? And I, I don't actually know if that makes the card better or worse. Like, obviously, there are some situations where that performs worse than just a bear and some where it's going to be better. But overall, I'm curious where that lands. I think it's directly correlated to how expensive the card is. If the card is six mana and it gives you a treasure token, like, I would always totally, rather have yeah. the five mana card because you have to get to six mana to get that mana back, which is awful. I think if the card's really, really cheap, then like a one mana card that you know sure. let's say it's a two mana card that gives you a treasure back and so it's effectively a one mana card that's much more powerful i think than than a one mana one one yes that's much more appealing than the alternative because on the early turns of the game is when the treasure is going to be most relevant where you're right. most likely going to be able to turn it into a very relevant tempo advantage by playing your four drop a turn early or something 
So three men, I think for me is right on the line where I think yeah. this is probably about as good either way. I think it'd be a little better if this was just a two drop that, you know, had to start target artifact when entered the battlefield than it is written right now because there are plenty well, then, of turn- then you're basically getting both effects and that's clearly more powerful. Oh, sure. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so either play it for two or play it for three and destroy Like Basically give it kicker, destroy an artifact. Sure. Then that's actually almost exactly uh, that adventure card from... Um, uh, Embrace Shieldbreaker. Thank you, Embrace Shieldbreaker. It's actually not that far from that card. So overall, if you're interested in treasures or you have a lot of artifacts, uh, this is definitely a card worth considering. I actually really like this next card. You see a pair of goblins. Ah, goblin! <laughs> Be careful. Uh, it's an instant. Cost three mana. You can either charge them, create uh, creatures you control, get plus two, plus oh until end of turn, or befriend them. Make two one one goblin tokens. I really like that uh, this is a card that can enable uh, the sort of go wide strategy, similar to equipment, where we can have this problem of, hey, you need a bunch of equipment, but you also need to make sure you draw your creatures to go with it. If you're trying to support this kind of go wide and then cast a overrun type of effect, uh, or what's the actual red card that does plus two plus so trumpet blast? This just has that failure mode of hey, it also makes multiple bodies. So if you draw these in the wrong order, you haven't. You're you're fine. You just befriend those goblins and you're good to go. I wouldn't even call it a failure mode. I'd say right, the baseline yeah. here is make two goblins. And if you're in a situation exactly, where trumpet yeah. blast is great, then you get to do trumpet blast, which is very real. And it being an instant to make two goblins is also very relevant. I kind of want to build a kitchen table deck with just you see a pair of goblins, goblin war party that entwine card from Modern Horizons oh, yeah. one. And the the one that makes goblin tokens with prowess, that would be actually kind of annoying to have some goblin goblins wizardry. prowess, goblin wizardry. But just I need to have all these spells that make goblins and yeah. no actual goblin creature cards would be a fun little fun little casual deck. So obviously not an extremely powerful card, but in lower powered environments, I think it supports that kind of deck in a really nice way. I mean, three mana, two one ones in instant speed is not nothing. I mean, that can really mess For up sure, some yeah. of your opponent's attacks if they don't know to expect it and walk right into you know swinging with. A couple three ones. You're like, ah, die. <laughs> All right. Well, hopefully we can befriend those goblins. Moving on to green. All right. So first card we have, again, just a couple cards, but Prosperous Innkeeper is something I think is really worth consideration. So exactly an answer to, or, you know, the next chapter in the question we were just trying to ask. This is two mana, one in a green for a 1-1. One, one. When it enters the battlefield, it's a halfling. A treasure token. It's a halfling citizen. I haven't seen that type line before. Right. We saw it on, no, we didn't. That was a dwarf doesn't matter there are halflings i now. literally haven't very seen it cool. before i have not looked at that type of <laughs> just now so i'm i'm being i'm uh i'm being very literal so it's a two mana one one that rebates you one of those mana with a treasure it also has whenever another creature enters the battlefield under your control you gain a life so this is kind of just like essence warden that lets you twiddle your mana around a little bit this i think is a a more powerful here as a two mana one one that makes a treasure than if it was just another essence warden right. copy uh, because it's going to allow you to then go to a four drop on turn three if you have your your next land drop, which is a very relevant boost. In well, I guess I should say the the caveat here is that the essence warden style cards are cards you always want to play first because you want to maximize your life triggers. True. And so yeah. the fact that you're not going to be able to play this on turn one and then follow up with your Johnny's primate on turn two will probably mean this is actually worse across the board for like things like constructed. But I think the treasure rebate here is more relevant generically speaking i agree yeah so i think that we've seen this uh life gain in green specifically pushed in strixhaven and in adventures of the forgotten realms if you're interested in pursuing that green life gain theme this like adds a ton to singleton environments where now you have your uh, essence warden and then in white obviously you have the the soul warden and uh soul other soul warden <laughs> what's soul warden Not oh soul. soul s-o-u-l i was picturing like soul s-o-l 
You have soul, soul's attendant. Soul's attendant. Is the card you're um, thinking of. So yeah, just like having more density for singleton environments. Obviously, you can just play a bunch of soul's attendants if you want. But if you want to be keeping singleton, more options really enables that kind of deck. And the treasure thing's kind of interesting as well. So I think this is going to be a card that can find some homes. Last green card is Ranger Class. This is the last among the sort of popular cards that we are talking about today. It is one and a green for an enchantment class. It is the only class we're talking about, though that is a whole card type with lots of other cards to support it. One Ranger class enters the battlefield, you make a 2-2 green wolf creature token. You can upgrade it to level 2 for 1 and a green to gain the ability whenever you attack, put a plus 1 plus 1 counter on target attacking creature. And the last level for 3 and a green, uh, you can upgrade it so that you may look at the top card of your library anytime and you may cast creature spells from the top of your library. Fairly popular card with 32% of our unrestricted cube designers testing it in their own environments. We tested this quite a bit, actually, just in the how our playtesting happened to break down. We both have this card in play a bunch of times, and I'm impressed by it. I mean, a two-mana 2-2, two, two, I, think, I think it depends on your environment, how much you, your green decks want that. I think my green decks want that now more than they did 18 months ago, two years ago. And that first level is very real. Like, you should play this card with the expectation of going to both those first two levels. Like, some of these classes you play kind of just for the first level, maybe for all three levels. I think the baseline use case here is... You get a bear and then, or a wolf, but you know, a 2 2 for two mana. And then later on, you can, when your mana, you know, shakes out that way, upgrade this so that you can put a plus one, plus one counter on your attacking creatures. And then that level three as a late game mana sink, if you are just stuck and don't have anything else to do, is very real. Uh, I activated this and was able to win a game because of it, because I basically just turned through my deck and played a bunch of creatures off the top and eventually actually milled you out because I played enough blockers off the top with Ranger class to, uh, Keep me alive while you drew your whole deck and died. It's funny. You were the one playing all the cards off the top of your library, but I was the one that decked. I, I think it's actually a very relevant thing to note. Like, as far as card advantage engine goes in powerful cubes, this does not compete with what other colors have access to. Your deck sure. had far more card advantage than mine did, even though I played an early ranger class and actually got kind of ran out of resources pretty quick and leveled it up pretty early in the game, all things considered. But yeah, it, it, it's it's a very real late game medicine, you know, and the right. fact I mean, that it's not tied to that 2 2 body, like, you get the 2-2 wolf, you can trade in combat with it, then you can upgrade this enchantment later on as the game carries on. Is That's most likely what's going to happen. If this was an ability on a 2-2, the chances of that 2-2 actually living right. to the point in the game where you're willing to dump 4 mana into it to allow you to cast plus off the top of your library, not very likely. But here it is very likely. Like this enchantment's just going to hang around unless it eats it in a removal spell. Yeah, I mean, the floor is pretty high. You're getting a 2-2 creature out of, uh, out of it from the beginning, and you have this flexibility in the late game. Similar to the Dancing Sword, even if that only matters 20% of the time, those are possibly games that you wouldn't have another way to win. So right. that late game potential is actually re very relevant. That's a great point. Yeah, even if you only get it to level 3, 5 10% of the time, maybe those are games that you can now win that you were going to lose right. because you have this, this access visibility, which is very real. All right, this set has a whole bunch of fancy gold cards. Do you want to talk about any of them? I'm not particularly inspired by any of them, but if you'd like to talk about them, I'm here for it. Let's just talk about Minsk. I really like this because I, for a while, was trying to actually find specifically a three-color Naya card that I would have uh, played in my own cube. I've since cut down on three-color cards altogether, but Minsk is a, a pretty cool option that I, I would have considered. It costs red, green, white. That is it. Uh, it is a 3-3. Three, three. When it enters the battlefield, create Boo, a legendary 1-1 one, one hamster creature token with trample and haste. Uh, and you can pay X until end of turn. Target creature you control has base power and toughness XX, and it becomes a giant. Uh, you can only activate that as a sorcery. I feel like altogether this is like a cool power level for a three-color card where it's 
a little bit hard to cast. It's obviously great on turn three, but it does scale well into the late game. It gives you this ability to uh, really change combat by growing different creatures, works with things that are made of plus one, plus one counters. There's just a lot of flexibility here, and, and I really like that. What is the flavor here? This is a ranger with a little pet hamster, and the ranger can do something to make the hamster huge? Yeah, that adds up pretty easily to me. No, but the, it's, a, it's not a wizard. Like, what is this guy? It's just some guy. I mean, guy. The, the, the flavor is this was someone's D&D character, and they created Minsk, and they said, well, I want to have a cool hamster, and I want to be able to make my hamster huge. Is, the, is Boo the, the magical creature? Is Boo able to change their size when their friend is nearby? I think we're just going to have to play some more adventures in the, in the Forgotten Realms and uh, meet Minsk. That brings us to the end of our individual card discussion, only a little longer than we intended on going. What else do you want to talk on before we close here, Anthony? I think we did a pretty good summary. We touched on the treasure token theme. We touched on the life gain theme, especially in green. We talked about ventures. Maybe the one thing we didn't touch on as much is dice rolling. Um, I think that's another sort of really polarizing thing where a lot of players or cube designers are just not going to be interested in dice rolling. The great thing about cube is if you're not interested in a certain aspect of the game, you can just eliminate it. So I think a lot of people are going to take that path. But it also is this sort of like interesting parasitic mechanic, or maybe that's the wrong thing to say, this sort of synergistic mechanic where if you want a lot of dice rolling, you can put all these cards that care about other dice rolls and make that work in, in your environment. But I think a lot of players are just not going to. You did speculate in our... Adventures in Forgotten Realms mechanics episode that they likely wouldn't balance any of the dice rolling cards to make them competitively viable because they wouldn't want that to be a part of competitive play. And yet we see Delina kind of doing some work in standard right now in that sort of combo deck that has some vague, vaguely, vaguely reminiscent of something like Splinter Twin, though you miss sometimes. Non-linear Splinter Twin. <laughs> it's Splinter Twin, but it takes way longer to resolve. <laughs> it's and sort of just like... Sometimes you assemble the combo and you still lose. It's fun. Yeah, I was a little bit surprised by that, but maybe that wasn't so much a choice as much as, you know, that's such a cool thing about Magic. Like, if if they designed sets knowing this is exactly what the standard metagame was going to be like and, like, just planned out the whole game, it wouldn't really be a game at all. We would just be playing through what Wizards Design wanted us to do. The fact that accidents happen is kind of ne necessary, right? I'm not even sure it's an accident. It I might think not be. They might have wanted some dice rolling cards to be competitively viable, which is what I said I would have done if I were R&D. I would have made them, first of all, way swingier and also made them competitively <laughs> viable. And I would have gotten so many angry emails from I Magic players. I think some good reasons they didn't And it would have been fine. I would have just, you know, weathered it and said, suck it up or stop buying Magic cards, you nerds. <laughs> all right. Without Jet, I do realize the wheels have come off this thing a little bit in that we didn't mention any of the ratings of any of the cards across the entire set of you because I didn't put them in the spreadsheet. So uh, check out the article when it comes out later this week for the ratings. And Jet, never go on vacation again if you want this episode to be good because wow. uh, apparently, apparently we can't be trusted. But that's it for our Adventures in the Forgotten Realms set review show. Thank you for tuning in. Let us know, you know on Reddit or Discord, various social media, Twitter, if, uh, if this style of more speed round set review is appreciated or if you really like us going deep on all of the cards in depth i know there are a lot of cube content creators out there and sometimes i just feel like we're saying the same things that people have said a million times before so if uh, if that's not worth it we won't do it anymore but if it is worth it and you love it we'll do it because we love you all of our music is produced by dj james nasty all the magic cards are produced by wizards of the coast this has been anthony and I, coming to you live from Anthony's basement, thanks for tuning in. It's live? 
I guess it's not live. No, I misspoke. Fuck.